had the debate with him about the unknown God. He was hearing all the philosophers, and the city at that time had 50 leading philosophical schools of opinion. Of course, none of them agreed with each other, but 50 different schools of philosophy predominated Greek culture out of Athens. Now, Paul has been inundated in all the philosophical debating in the city of Athens. He goes 45 miles to the west, comes to the city of Corinth with about 700,000 people. That's now a Roman colony. Uh, Jews had uh, gone there fleeing persecution. Uh, Of course, Greeks were there. Romans made it a capital of that region. And so he's there being thoroughly drenched in all the philosophical debates going on in Athens. When he came to Corinth, this is what he says, I did. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize. I'm going to say this respectfully. Anybody can dunk people in water. It it doesn't require a seminary education. Just a good back. Paul said, no, I've been sent to preach the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? That's one of the most debated issues, whether you know it or not today. What is the gospel? What is the gospel that saves? And it was so bad in the churches that Paul planted that he had to write Galatians to say, if you preach any other kind of gospel than the one I preach to you, you are under a divine curse, anathema. So there were lots of gospels floating around, philosophical gospels, works gospels. But Paul said, I came to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom. Now, the ideal is not with the oratory or the philosophical method of presentation that I saw at Athens. I wasn't depending on rhetoric, oratory, or philosophical uh, nice, uh, set you up. You know, I, I studied under uh, Norm Geisler uh, when I was in Dallas, uh, took his apologetics class, a brilliant man. And you know the, the thing about Norm? That uh, he could win the argument even if it was wrong. He was brilliant. And he was trained at Loyola in, uh, out of Chicago University. And he knew causatry, he knew law, he knew thesis, antithesis, and he can tie you in knots. Whether you agreed with the answer or not, he brilliant debater, brilliant logician. Thank God he's for the cause of Christ. He is. But there are some men that can make you look stupid no matter whether you're right or not. There are ways to set up the argument. But Paul said, when I came to you, I did not resort to any of the methodology that the Greeks are using. Why? It would empty the cross of Christ of its power. You would be wowed by my presentation, and the way it would go is whoever is the best persuader can get men to God. He said, I didn't do that. I didn't even resort to it. I came and I simply presented a message, and it was about a crucified Christ. That's what I did. Watch. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Basically, Hebrew scholar. We would say rabbi. It's a Jewish term. Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Wow. He knew how offensive his message sounded to the intellectual Greeks and to the sign-seeking Jews. Uh, 50 philosophies. How do you preach Christ in a pluralistic society where so many different views are out there? I just wrote down some of the views that we live with today. And then to think about coming to a debating hall at Cal Berkeley and let me go up against the philosophy department, they would laugh us out of the room. We would be offensive, and our kids go under this barrage, whether it's a local uh, junior college or if they're in a four-year state school. You must know they're blasted. If they were to be a philosophy major, I mean, Christianity would not even get to the table because no one that's educated, nobody sophisticated can buy fairy tales. It's the debate in evolution and science. Science is one thing. Religion is mythological. So you can believe anything religiously. You could even believe God created. And that's a religious myth that's been passed down. But if you're scientific and if you're post-microscope, you know that we today, we today can accurately tell you what happened 30 million years ago. We can't even get the history of this country right. The revisionists are telling it all over. It wasn't Indians. The Mayflower group wasn't what we thought they were. And you cannot believe when we can't even get it right, 300-year-old history who is the guy that says with great conviction and great uh, intellectual uh, acumen, we know this took 30 million years to evolve, and anybody who's been scientifically trained must agree. Right, students? This will be on the test. You better say right. And then a guy steps up and says, no, no, it wasn't that way. God said he created 
Well, we're now into religious myth, and when we go into myth, anything can be true. And so we even have Boltman out of Germany, theologian, says we must demythalize the Bible. We must strip it of all of its miracles and all of that stuff that seems to appeal to us. We must get rid of all the myths and really get to the true story. Listen to the philosophies we deal with today. Uh, humanism. Oh, my. Uh, the humanistic manifesto that says everything is determined by man. Uh, man is the highest order. He sets the rules. And life, is. there is nothing beyond. Above man, for there is no God, you are God. This is the highest court of appeal, humanism. Uh, existentialism, big in the 60s and the 70s, and you needed drugs to really experience it uh, because only the present moment counts. Uh, you're cut off from history, it's the now. It's present existence, present experience, and we don't need a past, and we're not sure about a future, so let's just enjoy the philosophical saying that says, live, eat, drink, be merry, existential. We exist for the present moment. We have no commitments to the past, really not even to the future. Utilitarianism, what about that one? Uh, boy, one of the most brilliant people in the world bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. This was the philosophical view of Nietzsche when he wrote to Germans, and it was Hitler who took Nietzsche's philosophy and carried it out. And Nietzsche basically said, uh, a human being has its value only on what it can contribute, only on its functionality. And if it cannot contribute, it is not of equal value to another human being. So a Down syndrome child, uh, a, a dark pigmentation child, a gypsy, and of course a Jew, anybody that doesn't look with blue eyes, and it's quite interesting that Hitler didn't have blue eyes, but he bought in philosophically to what Nietzsche had said. And he said, I want to carry it out because a part of this, we had a breakthrough in about 1890, right in there, the origin of the species after Darwin came back who said, it's only proper that the fittest should survive. And if I got the biggest army and the biggest guns, philosophically, I have the right to rule. See, philosophy determines action. And then we've got a utilitarian view that says, well, you're a Down syndrome child. Kill them. They have no value. They can't contribute to the German state. Well, you're not of the ethnicity that I like. So, and, oh, you're Jewish and you're brilliant and you have a bank that makes you the enemy of the state. will eliminate you. And I have a philosophical background to do it. Uh, Hedonism, eat, drink, be merry. Narcissism, fall in love with yourself. Uh, be good to yourself, forget everybody else. Uh, what else? Materialism, matter is what counts. Evolution, on and on. So what does Paul say? When I came among you, this short little Jewish man, brilliantly trained at the feet of Gamaliel, brilliantly trained in the law, but my life was changed on the Damascus Road by a crucified Messiah. When I came to town, I knew that the, I would be in opposition 
to the philosophy that you have fallen in love with. But what I'm disturbed about is there's people in the church beginning to be swayed so that they're forming party spirit because they have fallen in love with men over message. And so Paul says, let me reiterate to you the message I brought to you by which you were saved that's antithetical to everything you've heard, whether you're Jewish or whether you're a sophisticated Greek. And he says these things, human wisdom cannot save. So I didn't bring you a human wisdom message. My message I knew would offend the good senses of all the educated. And he really is going to develop in three sections we'll look at. Three ways God sows his foolishness to the world. Number one, the foolishness of a crucified Messiah. That is the most absurd, ridiculous thing in the world. You're telling me that Christianity was built upon an executed criminal under the Roman government. Yeah. You're trying to sell this to Jews who want someone to kick Rome out, someone to exert power, break the shackles of Gentile domination, and all of a sudden you're telling them to put their faith in a crucified Messiah? You must be out of your head. Second way God sows his foolishness is the kind of people he decides to save. I've been around Christians a long time. I even thought of this funeral. And for the most part, we're a fairly unimpressive group. No offense intended. Common as dirt. Plain people. It didn't start in a university campus. How many of you have a PhD? How many of you are blue bloods? So God's going to show his wisdom. I'm going to save the people you don't think anybody can save. And then in chapter 2, he's going to show the foolishness of preaching how he uses the foolish method of preaching to bring the gospel to people. Nothing like Greece. So let me just walk through human wisdom and why it can't say first. Um, Number one, the power of the gospel is not dependent on eloquent preaching. Verse 17, I did not come in town dependent on the wisdom of words. That's a phrase that says, on fancy word order, being like a Greek uh, speaker that can hold your attention by the hour. He said, I did not come in town relying upon my rhetorical ability. Now, a fool didn't come in town in Paul. He was a brilliant man, but he said, I did not depend upon my ability as an orator to lead you to Christ. Because I didn't want any of the glory to be given, I am the best speaker you ever heard. He said, I did not want the cross to be emptied of its power. So you weren't saved because of the eloquence of my preaching. What a humble man. What a realistic statement. Um, Because, of course, you know Apollos could preach better than Paul. He must have been really a brilliant speaker. Um, In verse 18, he says, I'm aware that the message I had to bear uh, was foolishness 
to the majority of you. Look at this in verse 18. Two responses to the same message. For the message of the cross, and that is of a crucified Christ, is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing, destined for hell, destined to be shut away from God, destined to be lost, determined to be lost. I know that everything I have to say about Christ is foolishness to you, is moronic to you. I know that. You know, that's where, like me, I, I'm, I'm assuming at least 80% of you are saved. Maybe I have a 90% crowd. Yeah, and that's why sometimes I think, well, is anybody saved? If you don't amen, what's why I think, I'm nervous about this crowd. Maybe this is foolishness to them. And if it's foolishness to them, it means you don't, you're not saved. You don't get it. Because I speak at different places, and it's amazing. A message that I can preach in the church, and we nearly jump a pew over. I've seen people, I don't like what you said. That, that offended me. I did a funeral at a uh, place. They were being buried at a Masonic Lodge. I am telling you, I was glad to get gone. I had a woman gave me a piece of her mind she could not afford to give away. Um, she let me know. We, ain't, we don't need your gospel. We don't need this. What are you doing here? And the family invited me. They just happened. That was it. And I did it. I said, I'm going to preach the gospel. Go ahead. That's what we want. I felt like calling back. You should have told her to stay home. <laughs> You've got to know. Somebody, well, I don't want to bring my friends here. They'll think what they're saying is foolishness. You see, the problem with the church today, are we ashamed of the message? Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you? That's why it's hard to be witnesses. That's why it's hard to evangelize on your job. If you're ashamed of it, if you who have come to faith in Christ, and that's what he's telling these people who are getting caught up with philosophy and getting party spirit going in the church, he said, wait, stop everything. This thing didn't start being sophisticated. It started with a messenger who brought the message of the cross. I know the world calls it foolishness because they're perishing and they'd rather go to hell than to believe this message. But to you who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. To you are being it is the wisdom of God. That's what he says. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And they'll go on to say in 25, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Um, foolish to a perishing world. Then he says, why are you so impressed with man's wisdom? It's all going to perish. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. By the way, where were the wise men when I came to town and you were set free from your chains of sin? Where is the Jewish scholar or rabbi that set you free? Where is the philosopher or the debater? Uh, who saved your marriage? A philosopher? 
Who broke you free from drugs and sin and all the debauched moral system of Corinth? Who, who cleaned you up? Who saved you people? What changed you? What, was it a philosophical oratorical preacher or the message of the cross? He says, it was the message of the cross because God's not impressed with the wisdom of this world. He's destroyed it. And he quotes Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 19 that said, when Assyria was going to invade uh, Israel and, and false prophets rose up and started telling Isaiah and the king, this is the way to handle Assyria. This is a way to do it. And in Egypt, in Isaiah 19, all the counselors to Egypt to escape, all other counsel fell by the way. It didn't happen. They were led into captivity. Israel is invaded by Assyria in Isaiah 29. It was only what God said that happened. And all their wise counselors were made to look like fools because God set aside all of their counsel and his purposes stood. Why are you so impressed with who the world calls the brilliant men? There's not a brilliant man on the globe that can save you. There's not a brilliant man on the globe that could pay for your sins. There's not a brilliant scheme going that could save your children. There's nothing that gives you eternal life and hope but the message of an executed Messiah under the wrath of God. Why are you impressed with men? That's what he's saying. Uh, man's wisdom will be destroyed. Where are the wise acres when you're really in a crisis? Why don't you run over to Cal and make an appointment with the philosophy department when you're about to lose your marriage or you feel suicidal and you want hope? See if you can get any. I, I went to a party one time, and uh, I was uh, uh, the guest of this man, and so all of a sudden uh, we're mixing and meeting different people at this party, and uh, finally I meet the man's sister, yeah, how are you doing and everything? Well, uh, she was a marriage uh, family counselor. Uh, made about 250 bucks an hour. She was so brilliantly trained. And then she introduced me to her lesbian a lover. And she said, I was got divorced, so now I've got a lesbian lover, but I still teach family and marriage. And I'll charge you $250. Whoa, I need your wisdom. Isn't it amazing how many brilliant people can't keep a marriage going? Isn't it amazing how many brilliant people have kids in such a mess? Are we making fun of brilliant people? No. But if I, all they have to rely on are the wise acres of this world, they will perish. They will finally have to come to the foot of a dingy, filthy cross in their mind and say, there is where God did everything necessary to get me to heaven. And only when the Spirit opens my eyes to say, there's where God did his best work for me, right there. And only God can do that because he said, I've hid my salvation from the brilliant and the wise, Matthew 11. And I've revealed it to nursing babes because I only reveal my salvation to whomever I will. And as a whole, the brilliant 
the smart and the rich as a whole never find the way. They're too reliant on what they've got. So he's going to tell us he's going to pick some of the most unlikely people in the world and just look around at yourself. Who would have ever thought you would have become a Christian? What were you doing when he saved you? And we'll just go on. Um, Notice verse 21. The world, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Isn't that amazing? To know everything, to know how to get a man to the moon and not know how to get to heaven. Um, Man through its philosophical, there's nothing in Athens that told you we know God. We love wisdom. We love wisdom. Well, how can you wind up so stupid that you're stumbling over God's way of salvation? You just get your eyes closed. And sometimes we think the reason they're not believing is we can't state it good enough. If you were more eloquent, if you were more oratorical, uh, if you were better at apologetics. Their problem is it hasn't been stated brilliantly enough. We haven't answered all their objections. Apologetics primarily is for Christians to know why they believe it. You've got to know that you can give a reason for the hope in you. I find apologetics does such a great thing for Christians because I still think people are getting saved through the foolishness of preaching the cross. That's what they must come to see. Um, Look at the Jewish problem. Two forms of idolatry here. The Jews are in the idolatry of demanding God to do performing deeds to get their approval. God, you've got to do miraculous signs or we're just not going to put our faith in you. That's what they're saying. Miraculous signs. Now, what's interesting is when Messiah came, he did all the signs. He he raised the dead. He cast out demons. Uh, Turn the water to wine. He, he could walk on the sea. I mean, how many credentials do you? He finally told them in Matthew 12, no more miracles. I'll give you one more. The miracle of Jonah. And they didn't even know what he's talking about. And this is after he cast the demons out of a demon-possessed boy that was deaf and mute, which was one of the hardest kind to exercise. And he said, They said, well, you're doing this by the power of the devil. After that, he said, okay, judgment's coming on you. You won't even believe messianic miracles. I'm going to give you one more sign. And guess what the sign of Jonah, what's amazing to me about it? Who saw Jonah in the bottom of the Mediterranean? And who was there when the fist threw him up on shore? Nobody. And he's saying, my next miracle, I'm going behind the curtain of the tomb. And for three days and three nights, I'm going to be hidden back there. And nobody will be there but an angel when I come out of the grave. That's going to be the last miracle for which I hold the whole human race accountable to believe in. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you're lost. 
but I wasn't there to see it. He intended you not to see it because even when people saw miracles, they didn't believe. Miracles don't produce faith. Believe the gospel and you shall be saved. Not the gospel plus 13 miracles. Christ did all the miracles he needed to do and they still didn't believe. So the idolatry that the Jews have raised up is they put God on trial. You got to do some more things that I want you to do before I'll ever trust you. Because this idea of an executed Messiah doesn't appeal to me. I can't buy into it. Do some things for us. Go, go. I got to perform to get your faith and trust right. You haven't done enough for us. Do another Red Sea. Kick the Romans out, would you? If you don't do that, I can't believe in a God that can't kick the Romans out. And by that, they said Christ was nothing but a stumbling block, a scandalon to them. They said, we can't buy it. We refuse to. If this is the best you can do with Messiah, we don't want him. Then the Greeks, who loved philosophy, said, your plan is not smart enough for us. Uh, We're looking for wisdom. And if we get it right, you're saying that Jesus Christ died on this cross, and somehow this is supposed to have paid for my sins, you must know I'm of a philosophical school that says people don't sin. We only make mistakes. We're good people, basically. So I can't imagine God demanding a payment for my sin when I'm already good. And and then, you know, that is a little gross, don't you think? I mean, to die on a cross in those times, human feces filled the foot of the crosses. As men lost control of their bowels, as blood came penetrating down, men coughing, asphyxiation setting in, you, you, just, you, you don't dare think, I have to buy that kind of uh, butcher kind of approach to God. You, this is paganism at its worst. It is not a sophisticated way to make a man better. It is an offense to my better senses. And the Romans said, you are not even to mention a crucifixion in their presence. Celsus writes all kinds of words that you are not even to bring up crucifixion among Roman citizens. It's too gross. Paul is saying, I know. I was there. I had the same opinion. He said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, and this word, there's two ways called is used in Scripture, a general call, whosoever will, let him come. And then it was used of those who heard the call and responded. This is called the effectual call. And it became one of the names of, a, of the Christians. It becomes a noun, the called ones. We, we heard the call of the gospel. We believed it. And he says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, how is an executed criminal like death, how is that powerful? Answer this question. What power under the sun was able to take a guilty race, pay for their sins, break the chains of sin that bound them? Because uh, see, the Bible doesn't talk about addictions. You've got a sexual addiction. The Bible doesn't use addiction language. It uses slavery language. You are a slave to sin. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6, John 8. Well, I, I got to do it. I, I can't whip it. I can't do it on my own. No, you can't. Where could you get the power? Only, only through receiving a Christ that was crucified for you. How could I ever have fellowship with God? Christ's death was powerful enough and effectual enough. It bridged the gap between God and men. And you can come to God not on the basis of IQ, uh, not on the basis of strength. Only the strong get saved, not true. Only the super wise get saved, not true. Whosoever believes that this is God's payment for your sin and is the power to break the fetters of your sin, I'll save. Now, let me say something to you. Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1. And in his prayer, he said, I pray to God for you that you would know three things. I want you to get it. I, I don't think many of you Ephesians get it. I'm praying that you would understand the riches of God's grace in his inheritance in the saints. I want you to know how rich you are in God, okay? Two, I want you to know the hope in which you recall. What are the great things in store for you in the future just because you came to believe this message? And thirdly, listen, I want you to know how much power God has extended to you as a believer. Oh, you extended power? Measure it. What, show me, what, what do you mean? The same power that raised God the Son from the grave, this power has been shown to you in salvation. And so he goes into Ephesians 2.1. By the way, when God found you, you were dead in sins and trespasses, but you hath he quickened, made alive by the power of the resurrection because he raised Christ and he raised you as a dead corpse towards God, raised you from spiritual death. And it's the power of God that does it. Where is it unleashed? Simply by coming to see Christ was crucified for me. Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God. And now by me believing in this message, I get to tap in to God's divine wisdom and God's divine power. 
what will it be like when you are raised from the dead physically? You've already been raised spiritually, but wait until the resurrection morn and God demonstrates his power over skin worms, over sharks that ate believers at sea, over fires that burn up martyrs, over lions that consumed us in the Colosseums. Wait until that morn comes and he speaks and your body stands up. You plugged into all of this by putting faith in an executed Messiah. So Paul says, I will not stoop to play the philosophical games of Athens. Nobody's being set free in Athens. They're all being impressed with each other's arguments, but nobody's being set free. Nobody's being uh, delivered from the bondage of their sins. Let me ask you, every believer here, can you remember back when the chains fell off? Can you remember as old Wesley wrote, uh, he, he showed, and can it be that one line is, and uh, I forget, he said, a quickening ray of light into my dungeon, and I arose, and I walked, my chains fell off. I mean, some of you were addicted to all kinds of stuff called sin. I never forget a Bible study. I think my brother, when I came back to town, he was uh, in great sorrows. Many negative things happened in his life, and he became quite a drinker. And in my family, uh, the boys, uh, except for me, they were all smokers. My, my, brother, my folks started buying my brother's cigarettes at about age 12. Does anyone want them bumming cigarettes? And my dad grew up with Indians in Oklahoma. Man, they smoked, dipped, chewed. They loved cigarettes. Only church would make them quit. Anytime we backslid around there, we all start smoking. I go to church. That's right. They love tobacco. One morning, David and I early are going to go play golf with a guy that used to be in the church. And this guy was a real fuss budget. World War II vet, built like a tank, a no-mess kind of guy, and we're going to golf. And he had to stop somewhere at a store. And I told my brother David, I said, just don't light up in this car. This guy will go zonkers. Do not. Do not light up. I said, uh, this will offend this man, and I know you're a chain smoker, so do not light up. And he said, well, don't, don't you know I quit? Now, this is 8 o'clock in the morning. And I'm living with him. And he smoked Havana cigars all the time. I love the smell of them. But, you know, if he quit, I sure didn't know about it. And 8 o'clock in the morning, I said, uh, uh, well, I didn't want to be sorry. He said, oh, wait, wait, wait. He said, I tried to quit before to impress you when you moved in. But he said, I failed. I couldn't do it. Don't have the strength. I'm too addicted. I said, okay. He said, but you know what? We studied last night. We had a men's Bible study at the house. We studied Romans 6, that now that you've been identified with Christ, you are no longer in bondage to sin. You've become in bondage to righteousness, and you throw off the old. You reckon yourself dead to sin. You're alive to God. He said, I quit this morning. I said, how could you quit? He said, I understand Romans 6, that my new identity is with Christ and I no longer have to be a slave to old habits. And I thought, the, the, the very positive preacher that I am said, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see when you hit that first bogey out there, it's going to be light up time. I'm going to tell you, from that morning on, in our 39th year, he's not lit a cigarette. Because Christ, you see, the cross is what enabled Christ to send the Spirit. There's no Pentecost, friend, without Calvary. If you don't pay for sin, you don't get the promise of the Spirit. I got the Holy Spirit on the basis of an executed Messiah. I didn't get the Holy Spirit because I can get the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is a gift from a crucified Christ that when he ascended on high, he told the Father, let's send him back the Spirit. This will turn a bunch of cowards into bold preachers of the cross. Send the Spirit. I've got the Spirit because my Messiah was crucified. Let's cast the demon out of it. (laughs) So what he's saying is, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The weakest thing God ever did is get on a cross. You can't get any weaker than dying. The strongest thing he ever did was not making the Milky Way in the earth, was raising his beloved son from the dead. And so we who are saved, we who have believed, we who have been called by God, we glory in the cross. It has a strange attraction to us. We've gone beyond the blood, the guts, the gore, the hideous rejection, the darkness of Good Friday. And we see there God's complete payment for my sins and the payment for all the unleashing of God's power in my life, whether it's to overcome sin now or to be raised from the dead in the future or a guaranteed home in heaven forever. It all is because of the old rugged cross. And... I want to say this. I started this church 39 years ago, and I tried to preach a crucified Christ then. And if I ever want to preach a crucified Christ, now it's now. It seems like a thousand new theories have blown through the uh, air. There's more theories on how to grow churches. We've got church growth theories. We've got new philosophies. We've got this uh, Kids, I just read an article, kids leaving the church. Leaving, they've always been leaving the church. Everybody ought to leave the church that doesn't hear his voice and won't accept the cross. It's not we change our message. This is the only message God will use to save you. And that's why we don't give book reports on Sunday. It's why I'm not a politician up here. And I'm not in on the latest. I'm trying to find out the old story. This is what saves. This is what would deliver you. That's what delivered those of you that are saved. It was not some new concocted theory. And Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. And I will only glory in a crucified Christ. It slays our pride. 
It slays our sophistication and says, I didn't get saved on great arguments. I got saved on the plain message of the cross. That way, the cross is not emptied of its power. It's not dependent on our slickness. It's dependent on himself. Thank God. Has it saved you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, the reason you are not, up to now at least, is it seems stupid to you. It seems too foolish. And I ask you, who is filling the void in your life in the meantime? How are you getting by? Uh, Are you ready to die? Uh, you know, it's, it's a, a different experience for me. I, I'm being around a lot of people that are fixing to die that I haven't quite got ready for them to die. I don't want my brother Paul to die. He's been in my life all my life, the first Christian man I really attached myself to. But he's dying. My brother-in-law flies in Monday. He's dying. He's got 15 months at the most to live. This preacher friend of mine, his wife is younger than my wife. And we talked the other days. We got ready to go to the funeral. She said, well, which of us is going to bury the other? I thought, is there any other bright subjects you have for today? (laughs) She said, one of us is going to bury the other. Yep. Which will go first? See, young love is, will we make love tonight? Mature love is, will I be true to them in their last moments? Will I be there when they're shutting down and they need to be taken out of bed and put on a toilet seat and they need someone to give them their medicine and they no longer can pucker their lips because they're nearly in a coma? Will you be there then? But I want to tell you, the message of the cross is powerful enough that it even bridges the cemetery for those who have believed. It bridges you all the way into the third heaven. And to be absent from the body will make you present with the Lord, all because of the cross. If you do not know Christ, I'm telling you, the only way you'll ever know him is come to embrace his death for you on the cross and that he's willing to unleash his power in your life. All he asks you to do, don't demand from him a miracle. Don't demand from him him do a bunch of stuff. No, you quit making demands and you start taking orders. Whatever, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And he will become your savior. And you will experience his power like nothing you've ever experienced in this life. Our Father, thank you for the gospel, for the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of the kind of people that you would even save. My, we're a plain bunch. So few of us make any impression on the sophistry of this world. But as long as you want us, as long as you'll save us, as long as you give us Christ, that'll be enough. 
I ask for anyone here that does not know Christ. They're even here against their will. They, they just, they can't stand it. They can't stand to hear this uh, old stuff. They keep telling it. They keep telling it. And it's still foolishness to them. They don't believe Christ can save. They don't believe they can have a new life. I pray, remove their blindness, their pride, their stubbornness, and make them see that they're bankrupt before God. They have no righteousness of their own that will get them to heaven and that they will perish. And they are in a state of perishing when such attitudes dominate their heart. Please break their fetters, remove their blindness, and let them come to Christ and receive eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.